listening to this week's Lefevre CFC podcast. Connect with us via our website, lefevrecfc.com, or our Facebook page, www.facebook.com slash lefevrecfc. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Thank you, musicians. I'm going to hand over to Joel now. He, um, Sandra came last week to hear Joel preach, um, and she did say, she came last week and she got a great message, but it wasn't Joel. <laughs> um, so Paul preached last week. She's here again this week, two weeks in a row. Um, so it's great to have Sandra here, um, but it's great to have um, Joel minister the word again. So thank you, Joel. Let's put our hands together. Nice, right, thank you. <clears throat> well, thank you very much. Maybe I'll just pray for, pray for us as we hear the word and I preach the word. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much that it is the season of Christmas and we get the chance to reflect on the birth of your son, Jesus Christ, and the family that uh, you had him enter into, and the, the great mother figure of Mary and the great father figure of Joseph. And it's great to just pause and reflect and honor uh, their part of the story and to think about how it affects uh, our part of the story and the part that we play in what you are doing on earth today. So Lord, um, help me preach the word, help me to be clear, uh, help me to say things that are encouraging and helpful for the congregation. And we pray, Lord, for those here today in the church that they've come to be refreshed and in this Christmas season and to hear from you and to be encouraged. So in your name, amen. It might be a little bit of a weird sermon today. I don't know if it's necessarily Christmassy. It's about Joseph, though. It's about Joseph, but I don't know if it's necessarily Christmas-y. But uh, we'll see how it goes. And, uh, you know, when mum shows up, it's scary because I'm preaching. And if I go into my life, I'm going to talk about her. And that's probably what I'm going to do towards the end of the sermon. So she get emotionally and mentally prepared for that. Um, so, I'm sure many of you have heard the term culture war before. In fact, Christmas is one of those times where you hear those, that phrase a lot, culture war. And uh, used to show up a lot in, around Christmas, and so you hear people say, you know, put Christ back in Christmas, or Jesus is the reason for the season, you know, pithy statements like that. Uh, culture wars... Nowadays is like year-long rounds. So they don't save them for just the special events. It's like 24-7 pretty much. And uh, today's sermon is on Joseph. And I'm going to sort of present to you, submit that the, the story of Joseph gives us some um, principles and strategies about how to engage in the culture wars today. So what does that term mean? Let's uh, define it. Uh, looked up a couple of dictionaries. One dictionary defines it as a conflict or struggle for dominance between groups within a society or between societies arising from their differing beliefs, practices, etc. So a nation like Australia has various cultures within it and subcultures within those, and they all have differing beliefs and practices, and because of that, sometimes these cultures clash with each other and usually, particularly when it comes to power. Uh, another dictionary defines it, a conflict between two groups within a society 
each of which seeks to establish the preeminence of its own beliefs, values, and practices. So there's a sense that uh, it's not just about cultures clashing, but it's about saying one person's culture and the beliefs and values and practices and worldviews of that culture um, should override or at least be allowed to live side by side with the beliefs and values and practices and worldviews of another person's culture. So sort of the classic culture war moments in recent history would be um, Israel Folau posting his own religious beliefs on his own personal social media account, then having that affect his public sporting career in a very dramatic way. Um, the wider Australian culture could not accept the worldview of his particular culture and wanted him to pay for it. Or a few months ago when uh, Danelle Wallum asked to be exempt from wearing the name Hancock on her netball uniform because of what that name represents to Aboriginal people in Australia. That was a culture war moment. Or, you know, lastly, locally, every now and then, we hear about people gluing their hands to the road and the CBD and interrupting traffic to raise awareness regarding their beliefs around climate change. Well, that is a, that's a culture war moment. That's a cultural clash. So we live in a time when culture wars are rampant uh, the world is politically charged, uh, tensions around race, gender, climate, and a hundred other things are abounding. And it's reached the point where you have to be prepared. You have to have a strategy for how you're going to navigate this cultural moment. Um, you don't want to be caught unprepared. So the story of Joseph um, can teach us how to engage the culture wars we find ourselves in today. The story of Joseph is a story about a culture war. Two kings who represent two cultures are living together in the land of Israel and in Matthew 1 and 2, these two kings and these two cultures come to a clash. So the first king we read about is Joseph. Now Joseph may not be the official king but Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy, a family tree. And the message of that genealogy is pretty clear. Joseph may not be the legal king of Israel, but he is the rightful king. Starting with King David, then Solomon, then Rehoboam, Matthew is listing each king of Israel. And then he gets to Jeconiah, and Jeconiah was the last official legal king of Israel before the Babylonians took Israel captive and exiled them to Babylon. After a generation in exile, the Babylonians had set up their empire on Israel's land and Israel were allowed to return back to their land, but Israel's system of kingship had been stripped from the land. So Jeconiah's son, so he was the last legal king, Jeconiah's son, Shealtiel, uh, didn't become the legal king of Israel but he led as a priest to his people. Uh, his son, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, pop, pop the bubble, Zerubbabel, didn't become, he didn't become the legal king of Israel, but he was a governor to his people in Israel. But after those two generations, it gets very quiet for these people from the kingly line. 
the line of kingship starts to become obscure. The Jewish community, they kept tabs on the line, which is, you can see it here in Matthew. They knew who the kings were. But the people who would have been kings, they stopped having any form of great public leadership. So Jesus here, he's been legally adopted as Joseph's son. Uh, By doing that, Joseph gives Jesus the, the legal right to be the next king of Israel. And unlike the kings who returned from the exile and began to live quietly, uh, Jesus was going to make uh, a whole lot of noise as the next king of Israel. Now, before we look at the, the second king who shows up in Matthew's gospel, we've already heard about him, Herod, uh, the rest of Matthew 1 gives us a glimpse into the character of Joseph. Uh, Psalm 72 records this prayer. It's a prayer for the king of Israel, and at that time it was Solomon. Uh, But it's not only a psalm prayer for Solomon, it's for all the future kings in Israel. It's a prayer for Joseph. So the first verse of Psalm 72 says, O God, grant the king the ability to make just decisions. Grant the king's son the ability to make fair decisions. In Matthew 1, and if you know the, the Christmas story, Joseph is placed in a situation where he's got some pretty heavy decision-making to do. So that's a good prayer for him. So let's read uh, Matthew 1, 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph was uh, faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph is a man of great character. When he's faced with the reality that, you know, to his eyes, his future wife has obviously cheated on him because there was no other explanation, well, Joseph wanted to be faithful to God's law on the one hand, then on the other hand, he obviously loved Mary and cared for her. And so to try and minimize her public shame in that culture, Joseph Joseph decides that the best option would be to quietly divorce her and in that way, maybe Mary can quietly you know, head to another town and uh, live a more quiet life without that stigma over her. But then God confronts Joseph with the greater reality, the reality he obviously didn't consider beforehand. Mary didn't cheat on him. 
she has found herself to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. That's the situation Mary and Joseph found themselves in. And it was part of God's larger plan to save Israel and the world from their sins. So Joseph hears this and he accepts what the Lord, uh, the angel of the Lord told him in a dream. When he wakes up, he does what the Lord commanded from him. He marries Mary and he legally adopts Jesus as his own son. Now this is where the second king enters the picture. I won't read uh, Matthew 2, 1 to 12, but to summarize, um, the second king we read about in Matthew is the legal king of Israel. He is the legal king of the Jews. He's the Roman king, Herod. So within that history of the Jewish people returning from Babylon and settling back in Israel, the Romans came and took away the Babylonians' power and over the land and gave it to themselves. So King Herod shows up in Matthew's gospel and he's the legal king of Israel on behalf of the Roman Empire. Unlike Joseph, Herod was known for his terrible character and behavior. Herod had many wives and some of whom he had killed. In contrast, Joseph spared Mary's life when he first thought she committed adultery. Herod killed some of his own sons so that he could protect his own reign on the throne. In contrast, Joseph is happy to hand over his kingship to Jesus because God has made a promise that Jesus will be the king who saves Israel. So Herod has lived a life of concern regarding the throne and how to maintain his own power over the land. And this is what makes the first few verses of Matthew 2 very alarming to Herod. And uh, we heard about it a little bit in communion. Herod's throne is being questioned by the wise men, or the Magi, as they are also known. So the Magi were rich. These guys were famous. These guys had security. They had uh, political influence. And much of their wealth... Fame, power, influence came from their practice of magic. So you got magi, magic. It's very close. Uh, they were from another country and they practiced the pagan rituals and spirituality of that country. One Bible dictionary says this non biblical sources reveal that magi were associated primarily with Persia, where they were members of a priestly class learned in astrology and other magical arts, including divination, dream interpretation, and the concoction of potions. They were heavily into astronomy, which makes sense because they come to Jesus by following a great star in the sky. And much of their prophecies and interpretations about the world would come true which is how they gained so much power and influence. Uh, think about the gifts that they give to Jesus. Gold, a symbol of royalty. Frankincense, a symbol of deity. And myrrh, a symbol of suffering and death. Now, these are the type of people that the law of Israel warned about. You know, keep these people out of the land. But even they somehow knew the story of Jesus before it happened. So there's a sense of irony here. Jesus is born and his own people in the same country don't come to recognize his kingship, but instead these pagans travel from a different country 
and honour him as the next king of the Jews. So Herod, naturally, this is making him completely on edge um, because they don't recognise that he's the king. The Magi start asking people in Jerusalem, where is the king of the Jews? And Herod, who is technically the king of the Jews, finds out. And he's alarmed by this, and, and so he begins to plot his next move. He asks them to let him know when and where they find the king of the Jews. But when they do find Jesus, they don't go back and tell Herod. The Magi do not listen to him. They do not acknowledge his authority. So his throne is under threat. The Magi don't help him find the threat. So he grabs the Jewish scribes you know, around him and they, and they inform him that the threat, if it's going to come from anywhere, it's, it's going to come from Bethlehem. And so Herod sets his sight on Bethlehem where Joseph, Mary and Jesus were. Matthew 2 verse 13. After the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to look for the child to kill him. Then he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and went to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod died. In this way, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet was fulfilled. I called my son out of Egypt. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became enraged. He sent men to kill all the children in Bethlehem, according to the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud wailing, Rachel weeping for her children, and she did not want to be comforted because they were gone. After Herod had died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were seeking the life, life of the child are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and returned to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. After being warned in a dream, he went to the regions of Galilee. He came to a town called Nazareth and lived there. Then what had been spoken by the prophets were fulfilled, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. So King Herod, um, with all of his resources with all of his Roman power behind him, was no match for a poor man with no resources at his disposal. Uh, how was that even possible? I'm sure Herod was thinking the same thing. Um, one of the greatest assets you can have during wartime is a spy. Right? So a spy disguises themselves and infiltrates the enemy a spy then collects essential information and communicates it back to their side. So the one thing Joseph did have, in fact, it was all that he needed, was this really great spy who just happened to be God. Right? If you want to have a spy, you're going to have an omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present spy. That's a pretty good one. So Joseph had the one resource. He only that's the one he needed. That's all he needed. King Herod, with all of his resources, was no match for King Joseph. 
because God spoke to Joseph in his dreams and Joseph quietly obeyed. So if today's cultural climate worries you, and uh, I know some people feel like they're walking on eggshells and, and it feels like you're being overpowered by it or how fast culture moves nowadays, um, you do have a resource that can handle whatever society throws your way. Uh, the voice of God handled King Herod for Joseph. The voice of God can handle whatever life throws at you. Whether it's the voice of God in, in dreams or prophecy, or the voice of God in scripture, or the voice of God gently uh, prompting and, and directing you, or the voice of God in the church community, uh, you have a great resource at your disposal. Now there's, there's quite a lot. There's a few things I could say about Joseph, but I, I just want to stick to, to one thing. The, I want to focus on what I love most about him, uh, his quietness. Uh, if you read through Matthew 1 and 2, you'll notice one thing about Joseph is that he never talks. He just sort of... Matthew doesn't record Joseph talking at all, and, and no Gospels do. He's presented as a man of, of great character. He's very thoughtful in, in wisdom and in incredible obedience to God. He's just not a man of many words, it would appear. Um, his decision to quietly divorce Mary was a reflection of who he is. It's a quiet soul. Goes about his life and business quietly. So Joseph was, he was someone who knew how to navigate um, his world with godly wisdom, with uh, quiet obedience, and without making too many waves. That's how he got away from Herod. And this is exactly the type of strategy we need in this cultural moment. Uh, quietness is a uh, severely overlooked and underused strategy when it comes to reaching people in the culture. That makes sense. I mean, the theme of quietness, it's not all, all over the Bible, uh, but it does show up. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul writes, I urge that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanks be offered on behalf of all people that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Such prayer for all is good and welcomed before God our Saviour, since he wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There is a, there is a connection between Christians living out their lives in quietness and peace and in godliness and in, in dignity and unbelievers coming to the knowledge of the truth and receiving salvation. There's an even more obvious place where, where this connection shows up in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul writes, We urge you to aspire to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, and to work with your hands as we commanded you. In this way, you will live a decent life before outsiders. God is concerned that when outsiders are looking into the lives of Christians, that they see a decent life, uh, a quiet life, a life that minds its own business. This passage could be describing Joseph. Again, Joseph was someone who, who knew how to navigate his world with godly wisdom, with a quiet obedience, 
and without making too many waves. And by doing these three things, not only did he live a respectable and decent life, uh, but he managed to outwit a powerful king who was out to kill his family. Right? That's no small thing. Um, so even though the world around Joseph was going crazy and spinning out of control, uh, he managed to not get caught up in, in the craziness of it all. He managed to keep his quiet and godly disposition in a very, very loud world. A quiet and godly disposition in a very loud world. Uh, this is what we need today. Uh, I mentioned earlier that, that the culture wars are rampant. The world is politically charged. Uh, tensions around race, gender, the climate, a hundred other things are abounding. And it's reached the point where you want to be prepared and have a strategy for how to navigate today. The strategy is this, a quiet and godly disposition in a very loud world. For Joseph, when life got out of control, his godly quietness kept him and his family in control. And could that be a word for Christians today in our current climate? The Apostle Paul seemed to think that the strategy, this strategy of godly quietness was a legitimate form of missions. To engage in the culture wars today, you, you generally have to be a loud person and we're tempted to follow in other people's loudness. Um, you have to glue your hands to the road and, attempt, and stop traffic. You have to throw paint on a famous work of art. You have to say, how dare you, to a room full of world leaders. And on and on it goes. Loud, 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 loud. But what if you can influence the culture without playing by those loud rules? Uh, what if you can influence the culture quietly? That's exactly what the Apostle Paul taught could be done. And that's how Joseph lived his life. Now, if you're not sure where to start with all of this, really the best place is at home. Uh, the culture you take into the world is the culture you begin at home. You don't, even, you don't have to have children in order to foster a, a culture of godly quietness in the home. Uh, but if you do have children, it does become all the more vital to start thinking about the culture of your home just because of how observant kids are, how much they naturally imitate their parents, and how their minds are like sponges taking in everything around them. And this is where uh, my mother comes in. Dur, 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 dur. Um, you know, kids notice. Kids walk around the house and they just notice what their parents are doing. And so uh, I've, I've said this before in a sermon before. I don't know where. I can't remember where. But I was like, you know, if I think about my mum growing up, I was like, all she did was just sort of like read the Bible. Now, looking back now, I, I'm like, she was constantly stressed out and she needed to read the Bible. <laughs> but back then, I was just like, oh, wow, this woman's just reading the Bible. And, and you know, I can picture it. It's as clear as day. She'd, uh, she's on her bed and she's laying down like this, uh, just, just lazing. And she's basically a kangaroo laying in the sun. That's how I would see it. Sitting there with a Bible, and uh, that's how I picture mum. You know, kids, kids walk around and they're like, what's, what's mum up to? I'm reading the Bible. Okay, all right. I'll check back in an hour. Um, so that was my impression of my mum. Just this woman who always read the Bible. I was like, okay, well, as a child, 
I'll be thinking, that's a quiet and godly disposition. As a child, I'll be thinking, oh, I guess the Bible's pretty important. Um, even remember as a teenager in Ernabella, um, maybe 15, 15-ish, driving mum's car, no license because you don't need one in Ernabella. <laughs> you just have to have a willing mum. Um, uh, so I'm, you know, I'm driving around, maybe after the youth shared, dropping people off, dropping people home, and church is on, and you know it's 9pm or 9.30pm. Oh yeah, there's some guy preaching. Oh, it's dad. Oh, okay. So I stop for a little bit, listen to dad preach, and I'm looking around, it's like, there's no one here. Um, but he's still preaching. He's still up there preaching. Um, it kind of reminds me of the, the verse in Mark 16, where it says, preach the gospel to all creation. So dad was just out there preaching to camp dogs and <laughs> telling the trees the gospel. Yeah. Did you hear that tree? Um, and so, I, you know, I'm looking at uh, mum as a kid and going, okay, the Bible's pretty important. And looking at dad preaching to hardly anyone, to the camp dogs, and going, okay, well, the Bible's important for him as well. And uh, those things are impacting. Those things are quiet. Neither of them are talking to me about it. But as a kid and as a teenager, that's what I'm observing. So culture starts in the home. And then the culture that is fostered in the home will eventually spread out to the wider society in general. That's a natural ripple effect that occurs. The household is the place to begin. Whether you're single, married, have children, don't have children, still living with your parents or extended family, it doesn't actually really matter because all you need is a house. If you've got a place that you call home, then you have an opportunity to start practicing what um, a peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified and decent culture would look like. And uh, this is what the world so desperately needs, is that type of culture. So let me pray and bless that over us today. Mm-hmm.